Now we're continuing our studies in the book of Hosea. Uh, if you could turn to the book of Hosea and chapter 5, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. If you've gone to Amos, you've gone too far. Okay, so Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then Hosea. Hosea chapter 5, and we'll begin our reading in verse 1. Hear this, O priests, pay attention, O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you, for you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me, for now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore, Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds, they shall go up to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah and trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm in, at beth Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and the third day, he will raise us up uh, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Amen. And we know God will bless the reading of his uh, own inspired word. I tremble for my nation, for my country, when I reflect that God is just. I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. So said Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States and the architect of the Declaration of Independence. I wonder how many statesmen today would utter a similar sentiment. For in the 21st century, even among those who call themselves Christians, the justice of God is not something that we're uh, over-familiar with. You ask the average church attender to describe their mental impression of God, and the first thing they will mention, I guarantee, will not be the justice of God, 
but the love of God. Love, that's the divine attribute that 21st century Christians choose to concentrate upon. God is love. We print it on our tracks. We illuminate it from our churches. That's what we tell the world. Some of you are old enough to remember those big yellow, gaudy, smiling stickers uh, with the smiling face on them that had the word, Smile, God loves you. It's hard to imagine if there would be much of a market for a similar sticker with a frowning face saying, Tremble, God judges you. Yet, of course, if, if we are going to be faithful to everything that the Bible tells us about God, we have to balance one cliche with the other. Jefferson was right. We dare not smile to reflect God as love unless we remember that God is just. And no one understood that more than uh, Hosea. As we have gone through our first uh, four studies, you might be forgiven for imagining that the prophet Hosea was a kind of smile God loves you prophet, that he had one of those yellow stickers pinned to his sackcloth. For the love of God has certainly been a dominant theme in the opening chapters of the book. In spite of Israel's waywardness, Hosea is commanded to go and marry a philandering wife, Gomer, Uh, as God loves the Israelites, to show how God loves the Israelites. And in spite of her spiritual infidelity, God would reconcile Israel to himself. In spite of all the times she turned her back on him, God was still her devoted husband and would not give up on her. That's the message. The Lord loves the children of Israel. Chapter 3 and verse 1. And and yet, if that was all that Hosea had to say about God, that could be thoroughly misleading. It might encourage uh, some to smile when really they should be trembling. And that's why uh, Hosea in chapter 5 turns our attention to the justice of God to set the balance straight. Sure, God is love. Nothing we shall read in chapter 5 Uh, must obscure what we have already learned about his tenderness, his mercy, and his compassion. But now Hosea focuses on that less palatable aspect of the divine character, his holiness, his wrath, and his justice. He tells us in chapter 5, like a father, God will discipline his children until they face up to their crimes and say sorry. Look at verse 2. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. The authorized version uses the word rebuke, but that is too weak. It's the same word that's used in Jeremiah 30 and verse 14. I have struck you as an enemy would and punished you. That's the word. Punished you as you would the cruel. As a father punishes his children or disciplines his children, so God punishes or disciplines his people until he gets an apology from them. That's what the very last verse uh, of the chapter, verse 15, says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. You see, sorry is easy to say. It's much more difficult to mean. It's easy to have it on your lips. Sorry, I I haven't a clue. Sorry. Is this seat taken? 
sorry, is, is uh, this my, my cup of tea? An expression that is little more than an apology or maybe uh, um, a note of exasperation. Sorry, I, I'm not sure what you, you mean. But to say sorry as an expression of personal repentance is much more difficult. As Elton John and then Westlife said, sorry seems to be the hardest word. And in his justice, chapter 5 of Hosea tells us that God will discipline his people until he gets an apology from them, until they say sorry and they really mean it. And like wayward children, God will discipline us until that apology, that sincere, heartfelt apology is forthcoming. So I want you to notice three things this morning. The need for the discipline, the nature of the discipline, and the response to the discipline. So first of all, then, the need for the discipline. Now, in our previous studies, we have already cataloged Israel's sins. She had been unfaithful to God as her legitimate husband. In her pursuit of the fertility god Baal, she had become immoral and idolatrous and had broken her marriage vows to God. Now, those crimes are repeated for us in chapter 5. Look at verse 3. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. I should explain that we have two nations, Israel and Judah. Israel comprises of ten tribes in the north, Judah two tribes in the south. The ten tribes of the north, the dominant tribe, uh, tribe is Ephraim. And sometimes uh, Israel collectively is referred to as Ephraim and sometimes Manasseh because they were the dominant uh, tribe. So when it's talking about Ephraim here, it's, it's really talking about Israel as a whole. Now, it wasn't that God was unwilling to forgive and be reconciled uh, to Israel. Chapter 3 tells us of the extraordinary lengths he would go to, but Israel was unwilling to forsake her sin, to face up to her sin, and say sorry. And in verses 1 to 5, Hosea tells us that Israel wouldn't face up to her sin and couldn't face up to her sin. She wouldn't face up to her sin. Look at verse 1. Hear this, O priests, the clergy. Pay attention, O house of Israel, the lady. Give ear, O house of the king, the government, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor, and their voters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of you. This judgment is for you, for the priests, for the people, and for the government. Uh, one of the things that we do as children is that we try to shift the blame to somebody else. He made me do it. It's his fault. Now, there's nothing new in that. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent had the leg to stand on. Uh, and that cowardly evasion of responsibility has been characterized, characteristic of human nature since. So I was reading about a, 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 a teenager who terrorized a community, a, a housing estate in, in Dublin. And uh, so mugging pensioners, breaking into houses, stealing cars. And when he arrived in court, 
his mother appeared in his defense and said, it, it's, it's really his friends. He's bad friends. It was his friends that got him into trouble, shifting the blame. Anna Russell sings a song which reads like this. I went to the psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed, to find out why I killed a cat and blackened my husband's eyes. He led me on a leather couch to see what he could find. And here is what he dragged up from my subconscious mind. When I was one, my mummy hid my dolly in a trunk. And so it follows naturally that I am always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day. And that is why I cannot tell the truth in anything I say. At three, I had a feeling of ambivalence towards my brothers. And so it follows naturally I poison all my lovers. But I am happy now. I have heard the lesson taught that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. Now that's the kind of thing that was going on in Hosea's ministry. They didn't have a psychiatrist to tell them that, but they were passing the buck. The priests blamed the government, the government blamed the people, and the people blamed anyone they could. But Hosea says in verse 1, stop passing the buck. This judgment is for, for you. It's against you. The country's in a mess and you're all to blame. You priests have made the traditional shrines of, of Israel, uh, uh, the traditional places of worship, a, a snare to the worshiper. Mizpah and Tabor were the centers of worship for the nation. They were the St. Paul's or the York uh, Ministers of ancient Israel, but they were heavily implicated in prostituting the, na uh, the nation to Baal. Those great religious centers had become traps or, or, or nets and snares for the worshiper. They went to worship, but they were entrapped and their hearts were stolen from God. And make no mistake, you priests, you are to blame, for you have allowed it these shrines to become corrupted. You house of Israel, it's, it's you that have pled the whore. It is you that have gone after these false gods. Give ear, O house of the king. You're not innocent in all of this either. Look at verse 10. Hosea is speaking to Judah in particular, but the same was true of, of Israel. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like uh, water. There was a lot of border skirmishes between Israel and Judah. And, and the, 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 the leaders, the princes of Judah, had become uh, like those who were lo uh, moving the landmarks. Those moral boundaries that had been accepted for generations. Those fixed points of morality were constantly being undermined. No one knew any longer the limits of acceptable behavior. The moral boundaries were being blurred by Israel and Judah's leaders. And God says, I will discipline all of you. My judgment is for you. You must face up to sin. I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. Should ministers and bishops and pastors not be trembling today? Should professing wayward Christians not be trembling today? Should Ricky Sunak and his cabinet not be trembling today? Israel wouldn't face up to her sin. And then, secondly, she couldn't face up to her sin. Look at 
Look at verse 4. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. Sin had got such a hold of her. She couldn't return to God. The spirit of whoredom was within her. She was in the grip of sin. To use Paul's language in the New Testament, she was a a slave of sin. And it would take more than a, a word of rebuke or a playful slap on her wrist to break that love of sin and extract an apology from her. Susanna Wesley in the discipline of children, said it's important to break the will without breaking the spirit. And God, through discipline, was going to break Israel in order to get a genuine, heartfelt apology from her. The need for discipline. Israel wouldn't face up to her sin, and Israel couldn't face up to her sin, and God had the discipline. The second thing I want you to notice is the nature of discipline. Now, in chapter 5, God employs two methods of discipline in dealing with Israel, withdrawal of affection and physical punishment. To any parent, God has placed two tools into your hands of effective discipline when it comes to strong-willed children. One is withdrawal of affection. One of the most effective ways of disciplining uh, children is the go-to-your-room technique. Go to your room and don't come down until you're ready to apologize. A temporary turning of the cold shoulder like that can sometimes break the defiance uh, of a strong-willed child more quickly than simply words. Now, God knows that too. Sometimes the best thing he can do is let his unrepentant people stew in their own juices. Let them feel the lonely emptiness of a world without God. I look at verse 6. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. Do you see that? He has withdrawn from them. God withdraws his affection, a sense of his presence, a sense of his love from his disobedient people. So Hosea pictures the the, the people of Israel going up to these shrines laden with animals for sacrifice, maybe weekly or monthly. But all this ritual, all this worship, all this sacrifice gets them nowhere because God has deserted his shrines and deserted his sacraments. They seek him, but they don't find him. They sacrifice to him, but they don't benefit from those sacrifices. He has withdrawn from them. Is that your experience? That you've lost the sense of the presence of God? You pray, but your prayers seem so hollow and go no, more, no, go no further than the ceiling. You read the scriptures, but it's simply words on the page. There's no uh, gripping uh, in, in the reading of the word of God. You come to church and it all seems so hollow and empty. You, you sit at the table week by week, but your heart is unmoved and indifferent to what the table portrays. You're utterly flat. Could it be that God has turned the cold shoulder to you? He has set sent you to your room, so to speak. He has withdrawn from you. Could it be that your refusal to face up to your sin and your refusal to say sorry has forced God to withdraw from you until you apologize to him? The nature of the discipline, withdrawn affection. The second is physical 
punishment. You see, sometimes being sent to your room is not a severe enough punishment to extract an apology from a strong-willed child. And sometimes a parent finds himself saying, not simply go to the room, but bring the spoon. That's the wooden spoon. Uh, Go to your room, but bring the spoon. And sometimes in God's discipline of us, he not only says, go to your room, but he says, bring the spoon. To break and extract repentance from his wayward people, God uses physical discipline as well as withdrawn affection. Now, that's what verses 8 to 14 are all about. This was a time of great political instability where uh, Israel and Judah were at war, fighting over those landmarks, those borders, those boundaries. Israel was torn apart by a civil war. Uh, They had enjoyed great prosperity under Jeroboam II, but his son was assassinated by a usurper called Shalom. He ruled for one month, and he was assassinated by Menahem. Menahem tried to prop up his rule by going to Assyria for help. That's what verse 13 is all about. When Ephraim saw his sickness and due to his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. Um, And eventually Assyria turns against Israel and uh, Israel tries to enter into an alliance with Judah. Judah refuses and so the two sister nations are at war. Look at verse 8. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm in beth Avon. If you look at a Bible atlas, those cities are located along the border between Israel and Judah. And in these cities, horns are being blown, trumpets are being sounded, battle cries are being raised. The armies are being mobilized to action. Israel is at war with her sister. And it was a devastating war. Look at verse 12. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. Look at verse 14. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim. And like a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. It's, it's a picture of the nation, uh, the nations, two, the two nations being torn to bits. Now the most startling thing about these verses is not the ferocity of the lineage, but the dominance of the first person singular pronoun. But I, I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Israel. Verse 14, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. Not Assyria who carried off Israel ultimately, but Assyria And Judah and these wars were only instruments in God's hand to administer the discipline that they had provoked. That God is not purely passive in all of this. He not only withdraws affection, but he uses trials to discipline his people. There are times when God withdraws and turns a cold shoulder towards his people to teach them a lesson. But it would be a mistake, a grave mistake, to think that he is unwilling to take an active role in disciplining his children. He's not prepared to sit in the wings and wait passively for us to say sorry. 
This is a God, says Hosea, who's willing to step into history, to step into uh, our nation, to step into our churches, to step into our lives and to shake us from our spiritual and moral compromise through discipline, through inflicted pain. He doesn't just send us to our rooms. He calls us to fetch the spoon. And he's prepared to use it. How tragic it is when religious leaders, when individual people, when governments fail to recognize his hand and discipline. Surely there's a, a lesson for Ricky Sunak and the cabinet in all of this. If Jefferson trembled in the 18th century America because God is just, surely Ricky Sunak should be trembling when he remembers that God is just. We see uh, the, the moral boundaries Shifting it used to be lesbian and gay, and now it's LGBTAI plus plus plus. Nobody knows what to believe in those things. In fact, if you take a conservative position on those things, you're the one with the, with the problem. How do we deal with it? Moral anarchy on every hand. You know, we, we mourn over the, the, the rise and acceptance and the um, prominence of homosexuality. But according to Romans 1, homosexuality it, it doesn't call for the judgment of God. It is the judgment of God. For the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And God reveals his judgment by keeping by giving people over. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise give up natural relations with women and are consumed with passion for one another. So, so the whole LGBTQI thing isn't calling for the judgment of God. That is the judgment of God on our nation. What does God say? You need to repent. Has it, has it ever occurred to any of our politicians that God is fed up with being pushed to the margins of national life, fed up with politicians who make decisions as if the Ten Commandments were never written and as if the Son of God had never come and as if the gospel itself hadn't shaped the institutions of our nation. Would to God that our politicians trembled. If Jefferson trembled, should not bishops, pastors, and ministers be trembling in the 21st church? That, that churches actually have become snares and traps to the worshipper. That you go to some churches and instead of being told from right from wrong, you're encouraged to explore your identity and your sexuality. Snares and traps. And perhaps the withdrawal of the presence of God and the factions and splits that have engulfed the church are actually a mark of the judgment of God. And supremely, surely we as individuals must tremble when we reflect that God is just. We, like the Israelites, are spiritually stubborn and a rebellious people. We are compromised in our prayerlessness, in our worldliness, in our, our, our love of things that are, are un, impure and unhealthy. 
God will not allow that to go on. He will send you to your room, but he's not afraid to bring out the spoon. Don't misunderstand what the Bible says about the love of God. Whatever you hear from religious sentimentalists, God is not all love. He's not all love. That isn't a a full summary of his divine attributes. It's not an exhaustive description of his divine character. There's something more. There is the justice of God. God will discipline his wayward people. And if you're away from the Lord this morning, perhaps you need to tremble. You need to tremble. Because God will not put up with that indefinitely. Has God withdrawn? Are things difficult? Is God saying to you in all of that, why have you forgotten me? And then there are some non-Christians this morning, and you should be trembling. You should be trembling. If Jefferson trembled for his country when he reflected that God is just, should you not be trembling for your own soul? The God of the Bible is righteous, and he must account for and punish sin. And there are only two places in his created order where the justice of God can deal with sin. One is the lake of fire, and the other is the cross of Calvary, where Jesus pays the price of sin. And in one place or the other, God's justice will deal with your sins. He's trying to frighten me into becoming a Christian. You bet I am. I want you to tremble. I want you to feel the weight of this this morning. It's not enough to say God loves me. God will judge you. It wouldn't be true. I could stand at the door with a big yellow sticker saying, Smile, God loves you, and pat you on the back on the way out and tell you that everything's good. But that wouldn't be true. Christianity is a rescue mission. You need to be saved. You ask in a children's meeting, what is Christianity all about? And they say, well, it's all about being saved. And you ask them, you ask them, what do you need to be saved from? And they scratch their heads and come up with answers. Oh, you need to be saved from your sin. That's not what you need to be saved from. Do you know what you need to be saved from? You need to be saved from God. You need to be saved from God because God is angry with you. And he must account for and he must punish sin. If you're not a Christian this morning, God is not smiling at you. He's weeping for you. He's weeping for you. He doesn't start smiling until you repent. That brings us to our last point this morning very quickly. The response to the discipline. First of all, we must admit something. Look at verse 15. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. We, we need to face up to the sin. We need to admit our guilt. We need to tell God what we have done. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Until they acknowledge their guilt. We must admit something. 
We must do something. Here is this invitation extended by Hosea. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us and that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. And we must return to him like the prodigal son. We need to come to our senses. We need to get up out of that pigsty of sin. We need to turn around and we need to tread back to the place, walk back to the place where we came from. We need to return to the Father. We need to return to the Lord. And then verse 2 of chapter 6, we must believe something. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. I see some people see a prophecy of the resurrection in that. I'm, I'm not sure about that. But I, I think what it's saying, after two days, the body begins to decompose. After three days, as in the case of Lazarus, the body stinks. This was the spiritual uh, uh, condition of Israel. They were a stinking corpse. But not beyond redemption, not beyond salvation, not beyond repentance. That God can come to that stinking corpse and he can pour new life into it. That they may live before him. If they acknowledge their guilt, if they return to the Lord, that he will revive them again. That's what these verses are speaking about. He will revive them again. And then verse 3, we must pursue something. Let us know. Let us press on to the, uh, know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Uh, that, that we are to have this priority, that we stop playing with Christianity things. We stop playing with uh, gospel trinkets we stop pushing God to the fringes of our life and just bring him out on a Sunday to satisfy our consciences but we pursue him that we that our great goal is to know him and you remember what we said about knowledge in the past uh, in Hebrew that it's not just a knowledge of it's not just intellectual apprehension it's Adam knew his wife Eve, Eve, it's intimacy, it's relationship, that the greatest goal in all your life is knowing him and serving him and living for him, that you give up all to follow him. And he will come as surely as the showers come, as the spring rain comes, as surely as the sun rises, He will come and revive us again. What a glorious, wonderful invitation and promise that is. We must admit something. Let's let's humbly just confess to him what our true spiritual condition is this morning. We must do something. We must must return to him. We must uh, acknowledge that it's he who has torn us. So that he might heal us. We must believe something. We must believe that, that when we come to him, he will heal us. He will restore us. He will revive us. And that we must pursue something. That uh, his going out will be as sure as the dawn. That when we return to him, he comes to us. As sure as the dawn rises. And as sure as the winter showers water the earth. What a challenge Hosea is to us this morning. Amen.